scaling a digital business can get tricky when you're in an old school industry. On paper, booking a golf holiday sounds simple, doesn't it? You find a hotel, you find some tea times, but we work with thousands of different suppliers across the world. But John Richards built an ultra modern tech stack at a golf travel company. And he created a process to keep innovation going. Today on the show, creating a digital center of excellence for any company. You're listening to People Changing Enterprises. I'm Jasmine Goodman. Please enjoy this episode with John Richards, head of digital at Golf Breaks. At ContentCon 2022, you talked about creating a digital center of excellence and how that has been transformational for Golf Breaks. First of all, what is a digital center of excellence and why is this important? What we mean when we talk about a digital center of excellence is making sure that we uphold very high standards to our digital properties. We develop subject matter experts from just making sure that the specialists in each area dedicate enough time each sprint to upskilling and looking at new issue initiatives or what our competitors are doing. And that's where we introduced R&D time for IT and marketing to allow the team to go off and explore ideas. We introduced a, a monthly town hall and we tell the business what we've been working on in the last month and what we're working on in the next month. So then when people are looking to overcome challenges in their own departments, they think about coming to us for help in terms of how we can use our digital properties to make their lives easier. The center of excellence is just making sure that we have people who have areas to focus on and that's what they're really driving forward. And it's proven really successful for us because there are areas of the business that, that we didn't have one, two, even three years ago, which are now fundamental to how we operate. Design, for example, the importance of really good UX. That wasn't something that we as a business really put a lot of resource into three years ago because we would rely on agencies. But now we have you know dedicated processes in place to make sure that we're always at the cutting edge of the UX experiences on digital platforms. And was that a hard transition or did it go rather smoothly? When I joined the company, the idea of a building a tech stack didn't really, it wasn't really something that was thought about so much. It was, you know, a lot of legacy systems built in the house on the over the years or purchased from third parties all tried to be stitched together but not in a very nice way in simple terms you know back five years ago technology platforms they didn't really want to talk to each other uh, or at least they made it very difficult to do that you would buy into a suite which would try to get you to upsell to different add-ons and modules and things like that and it meant that we had a very messy tech stack it made us really rigid as an organization and we couldn't really grow in the areas that we wanted to. We also used agencies for a lot of our kind of specialism. So, you know, we had no in-house specialists for design or in-house specialists for PPC and, you know, things like that. And what we wanted to move towards was being more cost-effective as a business and 
to do that, we did look to build up those teams specialists in house and you know have center of excellences where we could have someone totally responsible for that area of the business. It was difficult uh, at times, but worth it. It was worth it in the end. And you know, I think when you ask each other and teams tough questions, it's yeah, it can be painful, but it's in the long term, it's healthy, and it, you get better outcomes that way. And for us, you know, we moved away from using agencies to building out teams in house because you know we've twenty five years of operating, we've got. I think 39 people in the last count who've been in a business for more than 10 years. Wow. So we've got huge, huge internal knowledge that we were not really utilizing when we were looking at these digital projects. That is so amazing. And moving away from agencies, what was the thinking behind that? Yeah, so on paper, booking a golf holiday looks pretty simple. You know, you get a hotel and you get tea time, but we work with thousands of different suppliers across the world who all have different systems even some still work on pen and paper for an agency it's really difficult for them to come in and understand the complexities of the business and the systems and you know in 12 18 months deliver a really compelling digital experience so we wanted to utilize that in-house knowledge a little bit more i really pushed to bring that project in 2017 in-house the first thing was getting a, a designer we hadn't had a designer in the business for 20 years so everything was always outsourced to agencies which was very expensive as you can imagine if someone is currently trying to evaluate their own tech stack and seeing it's all the big mess like you once did what advice would you give them our tech stack you know we still have legacy booking systems. I don't think we're ever going to get away from those because that's what our business has, has been built on. And there's too much kind of IP in that for us to find a suitable third party platform and too much cost to, to, to rebuild it from the ground up. The challenge that we face working in the golf travel industry is you know, we work with thousands of different suppliers across the world. Um, some of them are parts of chains and some of them are independents. Every booking that we make is different. Within one booking, there could be 10 people traveling and they have 10 different sets of requirements. So being able to offer those real customized packages when they can vary so much from supplier to supplier is a real challenge for us. But you know, golf in general, it's always a little bit behind the curve when it comes to tech advancements. But we will look to improve that. And, you know, with the onset of, you know, everything becoming API first, it makes it a lot easier for us to build a stack that has the best in class platforms and get them to all talk to each other because they're all agnostic. And, you know, that's very important for us to choose platforms that are agnostic and play friendly with other platforms. But also really look at where the market is going and do a lot of research in terms of where the trends are, you know, what technology is on the rise. When we were looking at CMS platforms, you know, we spent a lot of time just doing some real due diligence and asking peers as well, other people in the industry, what their thoughts are and where they saw things going. We looked at Forrester reports and, you know, we could see in the case of CMS that Headless was the future. And that really 
chimes well with our way of thinking. Um, we've previously bought into a suite of products, but they never had the real capabilities that a, sef- a specialist piece of software can achieve. Well, my advice would be to really consider agnostic tools so you can really get the best tools in each area that you're looking to that you're looking to uh, include in your stack and then if they are agnostic then you can also then pivot and take advantage of opportunities that may develop over time a lot quicker if you were locked into a certain suite absolutely and you've just described the beauty that is a composable architecture because you're not sold on a suite of products that are maybe solving for what you're looking for maybe not maybe partly but most of the times they just don't have everything you can think of at the time you sign for them right when we were looking to rebuild our stack there was a lot of work that went into that rfp process to make sure that we chose the right vendors and you know it's actually really time consuming as much as anything to make sure you've got all bases covered and you ask all the right questions and you get to do the right demos and you're speaking to the right people and I think we maybe underestimated how much time is involved in that. And it's such an important part of the process to get right because it's so costly if you choose the wrong vendors. There were some things that we probably, in hindsight, would have done better, particularly when it's trying to understand things like, you know, migrating data from one platform to the other. We maybe missed some of those joining the dots in terms of how we're going to get, say, legacy content out of one system and into a into a new system so in hindsight we maybe should have done a little bit more of a deep dive into that area but it's a very tough job to do and to come out of it with the confidence that you've made that right choice you know if we can make iterative improvements year after year to improve that digital journey and that relationship between us and our customers and us with our suppliers then you know we know that we will make inroads into that overall challenge of making the whole business truly online. But then also being an advocate for composable architectures means that you need some good IT maturity on your own teams. Do you have any tips for finding great developer talent? Because that seems to be really, really hard these days. It's very hard. Recruitment, particularly for developers, is very tough at the moment. They're so in demand and the market moves so quickly. We try to identify young talent through our placement program. There's a couple of members of the team who joined the company at a very young age and as placement as part of their university degrees. And then they've come back after uni into specialist digital roles where we've trained them on the job, all because they showed some some kind of skills when they were in the business during their placement. And, you know, a lot of those people who have started on placement have returned to the business and, you know, some of them have meet, made it to director level even over, over the last 10 or 15 years. So that center of excellence is it's also really important for us to recognize young people and give them the opportunity to learn, learn at a, at a company that encourages them and, you know, Young, young people will make mistakes. Um, everyone makes mistakes, but fostering that environment for them to come in and continue their education in a real world 
in a real world um, in a real world workplace sets them in really good stead for the rest of their career and also you know it allows us to identify really good talent for when they do graduate and you're building muscle with them, right? For them to learn fast, fail fast and learn fast. You're getting that constant stream of new input, of outside views, of fresh eyes, fresh sets of eyes that are looking at what you've been doing and, and can potentially provide a, a great alternative perspective. So uh, well done. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's a particularly important as well because you know golf is traditionally... Oh, you know, an older demographic, but we we recognise that, particularly through COVID, the participation of golf went through the roof because it was one of the only sports, particularly in the UK, that you could play during the COVID restrictions. So, a lot more people have been introduced to golf through things like uh, Top Golf um, driving ranges, and you know, even the indoor mini golf. So, for us to use these young people to understand what they're interested in you know we see these these guys as being our customers of the future so it's important to get an understanding of how they're using technology and what their expectations are of, of brands when we're looking to build our products you're really setting yourself yourself up for future success that's impressive we want people who are going to come to the table with ideas and ways that they can make golf breaks better it's a fine balance to strike for sure. But maybe that's why I think you're doing an, a great job. The way you just described the team from a team spirit point of view is probably exactly why Golf Breaks always seems to be rolling out new customer experience innovations, be it personalization, mobile apps, and so on and so forth. How do you decide which new features to build? Or more importantly, which ones not to go after? What we've rolled out now what we're, um, is an experimentation program. So whereas previously we were very much guessing about how a new feature could improve the website experience, now we are able to test it and mitigate that risk before it goes live. And we've had our fingers burnt in the past where we've tried to roll out a feature that we think is going to be really well in that market. We've put a load of development resource into it. We spent hours and hours building it, but then when it actually went to market, it didn't work particularly well. So we've had to... Haven't we all been there? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> so we really need to choose wisely in terms of where we put our, our resource. Can you give us an example of a bad decision that you've had to turn back? We're not afraid to admit when we've got it wrong. And, you know, I can think of one example with our Scandinavian business where we made some changes to how customers see the prices on the website. And, um, you know, we went from kind of a, a from price to having it as day specific. So a customer would select a day and they would get the exact price for that day that they want to travel. But what that meant was, you know, we actually lost a lot of leads that way because we weren't getting those speculative inquiries coming in where we could get the customers on the phone, talk to them about their requirements and you know build a package for them. So where price becomes less important, it's more about selling what we do as a business and the experiences that we can provide. So we went from having a, a lot of leads to fewer leads. So we had to revert that 
development back. So our sales agents were getting more customers to contact and then using their skills as salespeople to get them to convert. So interesting because here's something that you think would work. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, until you put it to the test, you don't know. Exactly. Yes. And it's important for us to keep on looking at the data and looking for ways to improve as well and using data to validate changes. So quite recently, we've our customers can request a callback from our agents on the website so that they can choose a, a date and a time that our sales agents will give them a call. But when we were digging into the data quite recently, we could see that the agents were calling the customers too early. So the agents in their CRM would get an alert 15 minutes before the upcoming call. They had a, a call scheduled with a customer. And what some agents were doing, they were calling when the alert came in. But what we noticed was that could impact conversion by about 30%. You're kidding. Oh, wow. Because you're being called too early. Yes, exactly. So we would, you know, a simple change for us was we removed that alert within the CRM and trained the sales guys on the importance of listening to what a customer wants speaking to them in their language because essentially you know they're on a commission so (laughs) (laughs) listening to the customer can help you earn more money incredible to get my head around that 30 percent more revenue by stopping to call people ahead of time that is such a tangible example thank you for sharing thanks for listening to people changing enterprises We'll be back next week with a new episode helping you make your mark.